Thanks. Sarah, hello. Sarah Buonanno, back for a visit. Doesn't Buonanno mean Happy New Year in Italian? So you can call her like, Happy Sarah, Happy New Year. Since that's the literal translation, or something like that. Anyway, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your presence. We invite you right now to sort of uh, come and embody this message. Just sort of be in my words, be in my body language, in my, the tone of my voice, in the look of my eyes. I, think you, I just pray that you would use all of that for the sake of your glory this morning as we understand, as we tiptoe across your scriptures to understand a very important issue in our lives. We pray that we would respond to your spirit and to your word and to your leading well and that we would offer ourselves, all of ourselves, as living sacrifices to you. These are important conversations, Father God, we know that, and we ask that we would lay down our lives, lay down our will towards you, that you would be, that you would take up who we are and what we are, and that you would mold it and shape it into the fashion that you would have it to be. We pray for more and more presence of your presence in our hearts and our lives, that you would overtake us, that you would fill us up, fill us to overflowing, not for just us to be blessed, but for us blessed to be a blessing, that we would pour out to others, we would pour out to this local community, that we would pour out to the world uh, for the sake of your kingdom. We thank you, and in Christ's name we pray, amen. We're going to kind of tiptoe across the top of scripture this morning. I don't usually want to do that because I don't, you know, it's uh, sometimes not just the best way to do things, but I think we need to just sort of tiptoe across scripture and to see some principles taught this morning that are very important. Um, but if you haven't been here, we've been focusing on, uh, this series is called Overflow. We've been focusing on this verse, Romans fifteen thirteen. Maybe we can all read it together. Ready? One, two, three. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And no, we did not ever get the cards printed. I'm sorry. But... Uh, <coughs> I, I blamed Lindley, she blamed Pete, and then Pete blamed Joe. So it's Joe's fault. Anyway, <clears throat> sorry, Joe. <laughs> Excuse me. But overflow, uh, we've said it's a natural process of being filled with uh, the Spirit, the, that the Holy Spirit fills me, and then I naturally overflow to family and friends, naturally overflow to local community, and then out to the world. That overflow is it's, it's, it's natural, it's not awkward, it's not forced. Uh, what you're filled with overflows from you. Uh, the, that we, we've said that we've been filled with Jesus, that we've been filled with His Word, that we've been filled with the Spirit, right? And so in that process, we've also said that we are made, we are, we are made holy, or we, are, we have been purified, or we're being purified, that image of the glass being filled up, pushing all the impurities out of it as new living water always flows into it. Last week, we talked about being blessed to be a blessing in Acts chapter 2, and how this, we, God blesses the church, blesses us as individuals to flow out to others, to bring that blessing to others. We, we talked about also giving back to God in proportion, Deuteronomy 16, giving back to God in proportion what has been given to us. So we look at this and we 
Can't say it strongly enough. Jesus gave me his life. Therefore, in turn, I turn, down, turn around and lay down my life in response to that. So, in that kind of conversation, that brings us to the question of ownership. Ownership. Great word. Remember that word, ownership. Who owns me? Who sort of uh, owns my stuff? My talents, my abilities, my car, my house, my bank account, my kids, my wife, my life. Who am I in charge of all that? Is it me or is it someone else? Ownership. And I think that Scripture teaches that all that we are and all that we have belong to God. All that we are and all that we have belong to God. In Leviticus 25, it says this about the people of God, and we are spiritual descendants of these people. It says, For the Israelites belong to me as servants. Belong to me as servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. In Revelation, the speaking, in speaking about the work and person of Jesus, it says you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Interesting words. In 1 Corinthians 6, it teaches that you are not your own. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. In Romans 6, it speaks of our allegiance. It says you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. And that word slave, slavery there is a mirror image of Pharaoh and Egypt and sla- Israel's slavery to Egypt. God rescued Israel out of Egypt and in turn their status as slaves transferred to God. They weren't just set free and like, oh, go do whatever you want now. They were transferred to God. We are literally, in a sense, slaves to God. But here's the kicker. In the language of first century Greco-Roman world, a slave was considered a living tool of the master. Property in every sense of the word. So when the original readers came across this idea of slavery or this language of slavery in the Scriptures, there was no mistaking what the writer meant. It was very obvious to them, whatever you yield yourself to becomes your master. Let me say that again. Whatever you yield yourself to becomes your master. Think about what you yield yourself to in life and how it takes mastery over you. But they would have understood that the word slave meant bondservant. All right? A person who willingly submits themselves as slave to another. Maybe they had debt to pay off, or maybe they came from a line of bondservants. It was just a sort of a way of life for them. I don't know, but we mustn't sort of confuse the idea of bondservant in the Scriptures with slavery in American history. Those two things are very different. Slavery in American history was wicked and oppressive and evil. It was wrong. However, a bondservant in this context willingly submitted themselves to the master and they also enjoyed the benefits of the master's household. Bondservants in many ways were treated very well. Bondservants in many cases actually enjoyed an elevated status in society depending on the family that they served. So if you think about that, 
it's a very fitting illustration for me and for you. Because before Christ, I willingly submitted myself to a life of sin. I did. No matter how good you are, you did. I willingly submitted myself to a life of sin, but sin, I found out, was a tyrannical master. You know, it just was not good for me. It never delivered on what it promised me. But now I transfer my allegiance to Jesus, and a master, He's a master who's willingly given His life to me, or for me, to buy my freedom, which drives me to willingly give my life for Him. Jesus, as a master, is not tyrannical. He brings freedom from bondage. I can live freely under the protection of my good master, so to speak. And that's why Paul writes to the Galatians, it's for freedom that Christ sets us free. It's for freedom that Christ sets us free. What a strange verse, right? It seems like pretty obvious. It's for freedom that I've been set free. But I'm not out from underneath the master set free. I find freedom under my master. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Don't choose to give control to sin. See, sin has no more mastery over me than I give give it control, right? So don't choose again to be burdened by a yoke of slavery. See, sin as a master depletes me, but Jesus as master builds me up. He, He renews me. He brings me life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, when Christ calls a man or a woman, we can say He bids him come and die. Death to self, death to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the dichotomy there, that's the, that's the, or that's the uh, comparison there. In Jesus, we are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has, has come. We've crossed from death in sin to, a lo- to life in Christ. That is true of us in Christ. And we're going to see that symbolized next week with Aaron Doss's baptism. I'm excited about that. Those are fun. We take out the first few rows and we have this big horse trough. If you don't know how we do it, you're like sitting there wondering, how are they going to baptize? There's drains in the floor. We just kind of let it go off. Anyway, but it's fun. Um, but we have a new master. That's the point, isn't it? We have a new master. See, according to Scripture, we are the willing bondservants of Jesus. I willingly give myself in service to Christ. And in that bondservant-master relationship, I think the one thing that we must acknowledge is that, that all that we have, every, you know, everything that is mine, that I think is mine, is actually owned by the master. Everything is his. Yes, the bondservant enjoys the master's belongings and the financial covering of the master. Yes, the bondservant is entrusted with certain items or monies to steward and to oversee in life. But the master ultimately owns everything. Everything. The servant stewards what is the master's, right? This is reflected for us from the very beginning in the story of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were set in the garden to oversee or to steward the creation that God had made. So in speaking of being filled to overflowing, this whole language of filling and overflowing, it brings us to a very important spiritual subject. And if you're new to 6A, this is your first day, we don't always talk about this. It's always the nervous thing about, about, uh, for pastors. One, but it's a subject w- which is brought up more than any other, in time, other subject in Scripture, a subject of very practical nature, and it is money. Money. Woo! It's been said that fools rush in where 
wise men fear to tread. And maybe you think I'm a fool this morning for rushing into this, this matter of money and all that kind of stuff, but it struck me this week that this is where we need to, to go right now. This is what we need to talk about. And this, see, I think in this matter of money, the fear is unfounded. It's not really, it's not a real fear. It's not something that I should be afraid about because we need to talk about money in the church and we need to talk about it openly and unapologetically. We need to be bold when we talk about money. And we, need to, we need to talk in full trust and assurance that 6-8 is not in the business of misusing its finances. We may not make the best decisions all the time because Joe is not you know, great at those things. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Joe's actually very good at those things. <laughs> no, but, we may, but, but we're not in the business of misusing finances. We don't sit there and squander things. See, fear in this area of money has gestated in the stories of, of those who have misused the kingdom of God for their own personal gain. Televangelists, right? I'm not a televangelist. I don't have the teeth for it, right? See, like good priests, there's a lot of good priests out there, right? Pri- priests that love the Catholic Church, priests that love to serve people. There's a thousands and thousands and thousands of good priests out there, but most of them are under this cloud of suspicion, because of a few unscrupulous men. And the church sometimes resides under a cloud of suspicion in the area of money, given a few bad TV evangelists. So let's not give them that power. Let's not listen to that. See, as bondservants of Christ, my money, our money, should overflow to serve the king. We're not televangelists looking to scam anyone, to get them to give us their life inheritance so that we can fly around in private jets and to build personal empires. If that was the case, I wouldn't be preaching to you guys. You don't have enough money. (laughs) Do you have any money, Nicole? No. No, you don't. You're like, can I come over to your house to eat dinner tonight? Right? That wouldn't be smart of me. I'd be in Kennebunkport or like Miami. I don't know where I'd be. I'd be in Manhattan. That's where the money is, right? Where am I? I don't even know where I am. But <laughs> I'm in Ardmore, that's right. I are an Ardmoron. No, I'm just kidding. Um, we, it's one thing I don't like about living in Ardmore because that is a term that people throw around. But anyway, we don't speak the language of you and us. You know, right? There's no you like, oh, you're the church fodder, you're the cattle, and I'm the us. You know, you know that, that's not the language we use. We use the language of family here. We use the language of we. We're in this boat together. A local church is a family of faith, st- you know, sharing their resources for the sake of the kingdom of God, for kingdom purposes together. That's what we are. So if your hackles raised at the mention of money, I ask that you would do me one favor and just sort of reserve those emotions, set them off to the side right now this morning, just for a little while, and listen. Just listen really carefully, because I think we can be very candid in this conversation, and we can actually see that we can trust, we can have trust here, that we can have purpose in this conversation, and that we have an opportunity to really see the, the kingdom of God move to forward together. And that's what we've been talking about with this Overflow series. John Wimber, who was one of the original founders of the vineyard, once wrote this. He said, 12 of Jesus' 38 parables had to do with money, as did one-sixth of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's now clear to me that pastors have a responsibility to preach and teach about money, for Christians cannot grow to maturity until their hearts and minds are conformed to Scripture 
on their use of money. It's said that money is the one subject, as I said earlier, which comes up in Scripture more often than any other subject. So it must be a very important topic to our spiritual journey, our our spiritual formation, the implications of how we walk with Jesus. Billy Graham once said, and I love this quote, because if you think about this, it's very true. If a person gets his attitude towards money straight, it will help straighten out almost every other area of his life. Right? Think about that for a second. How sin becomes your master, you spend money on it, right? If you didn't spend money on it, it wouldn't master you. That's a pretty, pretty profound comment. See, mo- money, as a master, promises everything that it cannot deliver you. Everything. It can't save you. It can't bring you purpose in life. It can't make you happy. Now, notice I didn't say it can't help. It can help happiness. It can help in your purposes in life. So let's not say that it's useless. It's actually a great tool. Jesus urged us to have a proper outlook on money. He said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is... There your heart will be also. We've been talking about that for months now. Where your treasure is, is where your heart will be also. Where is your heart? What does your heart serve? What's your treasure? Because overflow originates from the heart. Doesn't it? It really does. What comes out of me comes out of my heart. What's in my heart overflows from from within me. So it's a question of ownership. Because what fills me is the same question of what owns me, what takes me over, right? Because Jesus said in reference to money, he said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Money should serve you. Money should serve you as it serves the king. We're either consumed with the love of money or we're consumed with the love of God. See, money in itself is not a bad thing. I don't think it's bad to be rich. I really don't. You might disagree with me. I don't. It, money, though, is a spiritual matter. It's a tool of the kingdom which must not be allowed to become the king itself. A spiritual tool in the hand of the steward, the bondservant of Christ, for the sake of the master's building, to build the kingdom. It's not my job to stand up here and tell you specifically where you need to spend your money. Oh, you should you buy those donuts? You shouldn't. I'm down 27 pounds. Amen. Woo! (laughs) But rather, we need to talk about money in light of our relationship with Jesus. We speak of ownership to see our money and our wealth for what it really is, which should lead us to wise choices and with the resources that God has entrusted to us in life. When we're filled with Jesus, it naturally overflows from us. And the same goes for our material and financial resources. They're an overflow of gratitude towards Jesus to see the kingdom advance among the nations in the hearts of other people. WEC. Dave and Lee Hall are here from WEC. They they have been attending this church for a long time. They've served there tirelessly for years. They mobilize young people to go and 
reach uh, the unreached peoples of the world. WEC needs money. Dave and Lee raise their support. They'll never ask you for it, but you could give it to them. <laughs> little plug for you. I'm trying to, trying, to, trying to take it. Love you, brother. Right? Martin Luther King, or Martin Luther said, not Martin Luther King, Martin Luther said, every Christian needs two conversions, one for their soul and the other for their pocketbook. That's very true, isn't it? See, it's a constant ongoing awakening for us as to who we are in relationship to God. In our early sort of walk of faith, we may look at this relationship very simplistically. We may not see the connections. We may compartmentalize. We may say that, well, Jesus saved me. You know, I'm going to heaven now. Jesus saved me. So therefore, you know, I put that in a box over here. Now, I live my life on my own terms, sort of, until he comes back. I might give him a little bit here and there. I might go to church on Sundays and give him the, the obligatory a little. But, but really, my life is mine over here to, to live as I want to. We may not regard our relationship with Jesus to have any bearing on our finances or our sexual purity or where we live or our career choices, or our calling in life, and all that kind of stuff. Yet, as spiritual maturity sets in, as you grow old, you should grow up, right? That's what we said last week. As we grow old, we should grow up, and we must realize that God owns all of me. It's okay not to realize those things in the beginning. You know, you can drink milk in the beginning, but later on you need to eat meat. See, the mature Christian willingly and gladly offers themselves all up to everything as a living sacrifice to Christ. As it says in 2 Corinthians, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly, nor under, under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Well, it's hard to be a cheerful giver sometimes. Man, you write that check, you're like, oh, God, it hurts, you know? Like, oh. It's hard. It takes practice to be a cheerful giver. But we freely and we cheerfully give to God what He has already given to us. Driven by gratitude of what He has already given to us or entrusted to us, which is everything. The longer we walk with Jesus, the more we learn verses like 1433 of Luke. It says, and this comes into focus for us, it says, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything, you cannot be... You have cannot be my disciples. Let me say that again. Those, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. There's no in-between in the kingdom of God. There really isn't. I'm either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. Being filled with Jesus means that I'm all in, you know, which includes my finances, which includes my sexuality, which includes my career, which includes my, my calling in life. It includes the way I speak to my wife or my children or the way I speak to my friends or I treat people out in the, out in the world. It includes everything. It includes my house. Little side note, when Kim and I bought our house, one of the criteria was that it had a sidewalk and it was in a neighborhood that we could get to know our neighbors. That's a Christian decision about buying a house. I want to know my neighbors so I can love my neighbors. Right? Where was I? (laughs) The longer, so there are some very sober 
sort of sort of warnings about scripture and mon- money in scripture. It says, "Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction." For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. A lot of people misquote that. They say the, the love of money is the root of all evil. That's not the what it says. It says all kinds of evil, right? Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And we don't want to do that. That's not what we want to do. There are some very sober commands in, in, in the scriptures about money as well. It says command. Notice it doesn't say suggest or like, oh, give them a choice. It says, command those, which is very hard for a pastor talking to his people that maybe make more than he does. Command. Oh, where, where do you get off, pastor, right? <laughs> That's, those are struggles of pastors. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now, some of this for us may be very difficult to hear. Some of it may be very trying for us to hear. I, you know, I strive to not only be relevant, but, but to be understandable, to speak to the heart when I, when I preach. I, I really kind of pride myself on trying to do that. I don't know if I do it well, but I try. So applaud the, the, the effort, right? But I also, in, in being a pastor, I also have the responsibility to teach just plain old teach in order to change the way that we think. Some teaching may fly in the face of what we've been brought up to think about this issue of money. The way we think about money needs to come in line with Scripture. I think uh, John Wimber was right in that. We need to understand that we are bondservants of Christ, that God owns everything, that there's no compartmentalizing, there's no half in, there's no half out. God doesn't own a tenth of my finances. He owns all of it. And he's graciously letting me use the rest of it for my life and my enjoyment. And Jesus teaches this over and over again. But in Matthew 25, in the parable of talents, the servants are given the master's money as he goes away to steward his money as he goes away, to take care of it, to grow it, to build it, right? And some of them do well at that, and some of them just sit on it and don't do well at it at all. And, and the parable is clearly teaching that we are stewarding God's resources here and now. Therefore, the idea that I possess anything in this life is a deception. I don't. The question is, do I invest you know, do I invest what has been entrusted to me to, to further the kingdom of God, to benefit the kingdom of God, to benefit the cause of Christ, or do I squander it, or do I just sit on it and wait for him to return? John Wesley uh, said this. He said, make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Ooh, that's great advice. Great advice. We should not be ashamed as believers uh, of, of a proper ambition to make all that we can for our families. There's nothing wrong with that. Scripture pushes us that way. I think that's very, very true, but it pushes us in the way of diligence, it pushes us in the way of hard work, and it pushes us in the way of integrity in the issue of accruing wealth in this world. See, there are no get-rich schemes in Scripture. I remember about 15 years ago, I was sitting in Lampung, Indonesia, at South Sumatra, and my friend calls me from... Uh, what you would know is Borneo, Kalimantan. It was Kalimantan. Anyway, he lives some other place. And he calls me and he says, man, I just got an email. Yeah. Some guy in Africa wants to like give me like millions of dollars in my bank account. And if I like help him to transfer the money over, he'll let me keep a percentage. 
you've got all, yeah, everybody's gotten that email, right? You've heard that. It's like a huge scam, right? And 15 years ago, it was just starting to come out. And so I'm like, dude, that's, I don't believe that. Like, how are you going to believe that, right? Scripture warns us. Scripture is so replete with good advice, just healthy wisdom. Scripture warns us that if it's too good to be true, it probably is. Very few of us win the lottery in life, and, and those that do, it often ruins us. The way to secure wealth is through diligence and honesty and hard work and integrity, and it's all over the Scriptures. But Scripture also tells us to save wealth. Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, his grandchildren, right? Proverbs 6.6, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. Proverbs 21.20, In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. He just spends it. As soon as he gets it, it's out the door. He spends it. Sometimes life does not afford us the opportunity to save enough for the future or for our families. We're at the whim of volatile economies and businesses and, uh, you know, corruption or, um, you know, sometimes governments don't help out, right? However, we are urged to plan well, to save well for the future for our families to, to do that, to do that well. But Jesus also urges us not to hoard, right? In Luke 12, he says, watch out, be on, your guard, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he goes on to tell this story of a man who is like just working to like fill his store, his barns with, with stuff, you know, and he dies in the middle of this obsession. And Jesus ends his story by saying, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. There's always a balance. It's always in the middle. It's never on the extremes. That's true of everything in life, isn't it? And Scripture also urges us to give all we can. John Wimber also wrote this. He said, so where does God tell us first to invest our money, or his money? In the kingdom of God, in tithes, in alms, and alms, which are sacrifices beyond our tithes. Formerly, I taught that a tithe was not necessarily 10%. It's a big argument in the church. Is tithe, do you have to give 10% or not? Blah, blah, blah. But now I'm convinced from Scripture that it is at least that. 10% or more, in other words. And that it should be given to the local church. That's an interesting point. Christians need to understand from the Bible their responsibility to give generously to God's work. Now, I agree with John. I really do. God's people have always been instructed to give at at least a tenth of their income, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain or or from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. And that tithe or that tenth went to support the temple and the priesthood and care for people and overall work of the kingdom. Can't do it otherwise, right? Jesus rebuked the leaders uh, of his time that were neglecting other things but not keeping up with our for neglecting other things but only keeping up with the tithe right he says woe to you teachers of the law and pharisees you hypocrites you give a tenth of your spices mint dill and cumin cumin is that how you say it and have neglected the more important matters of the law justice mercy and faithfulness you should have practiced the latter without 
neglecting the former. So, you know, notice he states that they were clearly not to neglect the tithing, but that they should be overflowing in all ways, all areas with the heart of God towards community. The local church is the avenue by which God is bringing the message of salvation to the world. See, change comes through relationships. You know, I send my money to somebody on TV. There's no relationship there. But when we bury it here in this community and it flows out to the people that we know and love and we have interaction with, that changes lives. Anyway, (laughs) tithing is a spiritual issue. It is practically tied to the local church. John Wimber went as far as to say that we give a tenth to the local church before anything else, that anything else above and beyond that is an alma. It's something, it's something different. I remember when we first started 6-8 and we hadn't yet started passing the tithe box. We were meeting on Sunday mornings, but we weren't passing the tithe box, tithe box yet. And I had this young guy come to me. He's probably 20, 21, 22 years old. And he comes to me and he was all happy. And he's like, man, I, I think it's great that you don't ask for money. That's wonderful. I think that's really cool. And he went on to explain that churches, all they care about is money. They're always asking for money and blah, 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 blah. blah. He goes on in this whole thing. All right. And I'm looking at him thinking, oh, you poor thing. I'm going to burst your bubble in just about two seconds. And I, I didn't mean to. I wasn't trying to be mean, but it was not true what he was saying. It was, it, that was a lie that he had believed about churches. And I looked at him and I said, I'm sorry, man. I said, I'm sorry, but the only reason we're not collecting a tithe is I haven't opened the bank account yet, and I don't want to be sitting on your cash at my house. I just don't want to be responsible for that. So when we get that bank account open, I hope you're going to write me a check. (laughs) Right? (laughs) I'm not making fun of the guy. I'm not. Because I would have said the same thing at his age. I really would have. I'm not making fun of him. But you've got to realize that is an extremely naive comment. It's a really naive comment. Because churches are organizations with bills to pay, rent to pay. Churches, like everyone else, operate on money. We have salaries. You know, churches expend our resources on communities, in, in the areas of poverty, in areas of, of missions, things like that. We have salaries, we have people to care for. Comments like that only come from young people that don't, they've never had the experience of running an organization. They've never had the experience of having to pay the bills. They don't stand responsible over somebody else that needs that money to eat. Money is a spiritual matter because it cares for people. It can. So we can't be afraid to talk about money. God calls us to speak absolutely, unapologetically on the issue. And at 6-8, we never want to be limited, limited in our ministry as a, because of a lack of funding. I never want to turn somebody in the community away that really needs something away because we just don't, we haven't collected enough. I want a huge reserve of money to be able to care for those single moms in the, in, in the community that can't do something. That don't have a car. We've, 6-8 has given single moms cars in the, ba- in the past. It was really cool. I, just as a totally side note. I remember I sent out an email because we had a single mom in our crowd that just didn't have enough money and she didn't have a car and she couldn't get anywhere and, da, 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 and she needed a car for work. And I put out the email. I said, anybody got a car? Within 10 minutes, I think, I had a car. Free. A free car. That's, that is brilliant. <laughs> that is really cool. 
In our history, we've paid our rent, we've, we've paid salaries, we've bought equipment, we've paid other necessary bills, we've helped out local families, both inside and outside of 6-8, who were struggling. We've invested back into our local community partnerships, which has taken those relationships farther and opened doors with them. We've supported the halls in their sort of endeavor to mobilize people to go reach the unreached of the world. We're, we're invest, we've invested money in this building. We did it last week. A couple of you even spent your own money on that as we fixed some things after church. We've put money in to other buildings in town because we want to show our, our neighbors that we care for them and we love them and we appreciate them. We've cleaned out homes. Uh, we've bought dumpsters and cleaned out homes. We've cleaned up yards. We've, we've, we've done repairs on homes and, and, and uh, a number of homes in this community. We've tra- trained our leadership. We've refreshed them with gifts. We did that for Pete last week. Well-deserved gifts, gifts that they should get. You know, we've, we've put on community parties, we've put on luncheons, which have, which have increased our relationships with this community. It's opened doors for people to converse about the gospel. You guys have bought me a, a dishwasher and other things for when I couldn't pay for it. We've welcomed our newcomers with meals and fun events. We've developed and implemented retreats, and we've seen lives change as a result of that. And we want to keep doing that stuff. We want to keep doing it more and more and more. And we never want to be limited. Never. Never. One of our dreams is that we have our own physical footprint in Ardmore. We want our own building someday. There's a big argument about like, whether or not we should do that or not. I'm convinced after seven years of debating this issue that we need our own footprint. But the problem is the Ardmore-Havertown area is a very crowded place and a very expensive place to live and to rent or to buy. There are a few options to meet as a church, and this is a wonderful place, and we're very grateful for this place, but we have to be honest. We could be out on our ear in a second. This place could flood, and we'd have no place to meet. They could go belly up financially. They're a nonprofit. It's hard for them to find money with you know, funding getting cut all the time. They could be out on their ear, and therefore that means we're out on our ear because we, we don't have enough money to buy a building. We need to be wise to save for the future and build our, our reserves so that for that rainy day when we can't you know, have this place, we, we need to buy a place or whatever it is. We have a dream. We've had this dream for years to make that place a community uh, sort of center, a, a community uh, outreach center, a place where people can use it to, for community events or classes or art classes or whatever it is that they want to use it for. We've, we've been in conversation with leadership in the community about making it a, a, um, a performing arts center and the, and the church kind of runs it and all that kind of stuff. And the community leadership is behind the vision. But all that will remain a dream unless we overflow in the area of our finances, unless we tithe well. The pastoral council is starting to meet with other churches that have been through this process that have like bought a building and renovated a building. West Philly Vineyard just did it. Uh, they're in the process of finishing up their renovations now. We're going to meet with them and talk with them. We want to get good counsel on this t- stuff. But my challenge to us today is to think hard about ownership. Think hard about ownership. Am I glorifying God in all ways? Am I a good steward of all that God has entrusted me? And honestly, it is hard to do in the beginning. When you first start tithing, it is like pulling teeth. You're like, oh, man, this hurts. <laughs> Woo! Woo! Maybe I could just do 2%, you know, that kind of thing. 
But here, the, 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 the numbers in America are that the evangelical church gives, I think, I think it's less than 2%. We did that sermon a few months back, and I, remember, I think it was less than 2% that the evangelical church gives as a whole, or the church gives as a whole. When we're asked to give 10 by, by the Lord himself, so if you don't tithe, or you haven't tithed, or if you're only tithing at 2% or 5% or whatever, I would challenge you, not because I need a bigger car or a bigger house. It's not going to come to me. My, ch- my salary won't change. It's going to go to the work that we do as a family of faith. It's going to go to the kingdom of God. It's going to go to blessing people and to see that message go forward. And that's kind of cool. So if you're sitting at home next Saturday night, Lay your check back out on the table and think about it. And then boldly I say to you, get up the next morning and write that check and bring it with you. And I can't be embarrassed by saying that. As a pastor, I cannot be embarrassed to say that because I'm asking you to do something that God is going to bless you in. And I really do believe that. I'm not saying he's going like, to give you a Mercedes. That's, none of, that's not our message at 6-8. But he will bless you in some way, shape, or fashion for that. And you will be, have the honor of participating in the kingdom of God. So let me pray for us. Father, we know that this is a difficult conversation. And I don't like it. And I've grown in it. And I'm continually growing in it. And I don't necessarily enjoy all the time, every time, giving my money. I, I know. I have to confess that. But we want to grow into be cheerful givers. And we know that sometimes that takes practice and we want to do it well. And we want, to, we want to look back 10 years from now. We want to look back and say, man, look what we've done in this community and, and therefore out into the world as a result of our giving. As a result of our giving. As a result of us being all in. Not half in, not half out, but all in. Look what you have done in this world, look at the people that you've affected, the lives that have been changed, the people that now know you as their Savior and are living lives that are blessed and changed and renewed because of the sacrifices that we make right now. Father, we think about 30 years into the future and 50 years into the future. The legacy that this church leaves, the footprint, the the impact that it leaves in this community, we pray for a strong one, a good one, a, a, a really positive, wonderful impact on this community. And we pray that we could man up to that. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.